Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. Uh, Jocelyn, what's the plural of moose? Moose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Glad we're on the same page. I, I say moose all the time because it's an amazing word, but uh, <laughs> I just had to ask that. I'm talking about Vermont's largest mammal with today's winning question asker, Jocelyn Hebert. I live in North Callis Village. I am the former editor of the Long Trail News Magazine at the Green Mountain Club. Have you hiked the Long Trail? Oh, yes. I've actually <laughs> hiked the whole thing four times. Oh, my God. During one of those state traverses, she had a close encounter. I could smell it before I saw it, so I, I knew something was in the area. What did it smell like? It's, it's kind of a mangy smell. It was pretty strong. Um, then the moose ran diagonally across and stood off the side of the trail, and we had a little a bit of a stare down. I didn't really dare to keep hiking because I think moose can be aggressive and dangerous, and the way it was pretty close, so I just waited. Um, and then eventually I, I started walking again because he wasn't going anywhere. Jocelyn has spent so much time wandering through natural moose habitat, streams and beaver ponds and patches of young forest, and she's seen so many moose droppings along the way that sometimes she senses their presence, even without an actual sighting. I have this feeling that it's like a, is it Gary Larson, <laughs> the, the cartoonist that has animals peering at you um, from, this, from the woods, and I always felt like that, like there's a moose just watching us go by, but we just, we're not going to see him. To Jocelyn, spotting a moose is something of a mystery with a healthy dose of absurdist comedy. Take her friend Doug, for instance. Like Jocelyn, Doug has lived in Vermont his entire life. Unlike Jocelyn, Doug has never seen a moose, in fact, Jocelyn hasn't seen a moose in the five years since she met Doug. It's just a joke now that if he's with me, I will not see a moose. I know this feeling. I've spent a lot of time in moose country, and I've never seen one either. As part of my reporting for this episode, I even visited one of Vermont's moose hotspots, an eight-mile stretch of Route 12 in Elmore, known as Moose Alley. And there is just a ton of moose. I mean, more, more than any other site that we used in that particular study. There's just moose all over the place. I mean, Conservation ecologist Paul Marangelo from the Vermont Nature Conservancy showed me around. People see them here all the time. You drive down and you're driving up and down the road, there's probably records. Apparently, a lot of people have seen moose in Moose Alley, but not me. On the day I was there, all I found were a whole bunch of flying pests. Well, it's definitely fly season. Yeah, black flies are out. It kind of breaks my brain that animals like moose are so huge, they live all around us, but they're still so elusive. Hooved phantoms of the forest. 
Now, I'm not a very religious person, but I'm convinced that if I ever see one, it's going to be something of a spiritual experience. And for that, I have Jocelyn to thank, along with the many writers who describe their moose encounters with a sort of mythical reverence. Your antlers like seaweed, your face like a wolf's death mask, writes poet Anne Sexton. Henry David Thoreau called moose God's own horses. Who wouldn't want a glimpse of God's own horses? And then there's Elizabeth Bishop, who famously spent more than 25 years finishing a poem called The Moose about an overnight bus trip from Nova Scotia to Boston. The climax of the poem was when a moose walked out into the middle of the road. It approaches. It sniffs at the bus's hot hood, towering, antlerless, high as a church, homely as a house. Moose on roads is actually what our question asker Jocelyn was wondering about. More specifically, moose signs on roads. You know, those yellow ones with moose or moose crossing on them. Where did your curiosity about moose signs come from? I think I've been, well, I've been curious about it for a long time. Every time I drive by one, I'm looking around and kind of looking at the area and wondering, like, why why would there be a moose sign here? Like, how do they decide? Jocelyn is on to something here. And this is where the rubber meets the road meets the moose. Because while seeing a moose on a road in the middle of the night may have been a romantic notion for the poet Elizabeth Bishop, the reality of encountering a moose on a road is usually much scarier. And it was just after dark, coming north on 89, about mile 16. And all of a sudden, you know, I say, moose. And about a tenth of a second later, I hit the moose. Welcome to Brave Little State, VPR's people-powered journalism show. I'm Angela Evansy. Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been asked and voted on by you, our audience, because we think our journalism is better when you're a part of it. Today, my name is Jocelyn Hebert, and I live in North Callis Village. And I'm curious about the moose signs you see along Vermont's roads. A question about wildlife crossing signs gets to the heart of a tension between the natural world and human infrastructure. What factors are considered before placing one? Are they there because there's been a moose car collision? Or is there a wildlife corridor nearby? And who decides when one is placed and where it goes? The story of moose signs in Vermont leads my colleague Josh Crane down a rabbit hole of moose-sized proportions. Wildlife is predictably unpredictable. Where we explore why moose cross the road. Moose are actually attracted to roads in some areas because of the salt. And why they're so dangerous for Vermont drivers. And so all the internal organs wound up inside the car, the rest of the moose went over the top. And by the way... Do these signs even make a difference? Is it going to slow drivers down? Uh, Typically, no. We have support from VPR Sustaining Members. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. 
Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. Every time I drive by a moose crossing sign in Vermont, I get a little excited. Moose. Where? And then, predictably, I feel a twinge of disappointment every time I drive out of the area without a sighting. The signs seem kind of like a tease. Except, they're actually meant to warn you of danger. Because of all the animals that might be tempted to cross a road in Vermont, the last one you want to hit is a moose. Just listen to some of these crash reports. September 27th, 1985. September 22nd, 2006. May 24th, 2009. The woman hit a big bull, approximately 1,000 pounds. Found dead in his 1995 Subaru, 500 feet off-road. Moose went through the windshield. These are huge, scary accidents. Yes, moose are big animals. But part of what makes them so dangerous is their behavior. Here's what you need to know, according to Nick Fortin, the head moose biologist at Vermont Fish and Wildlife. Unlike a deer whose defense is, is get the heck out of there, a moose's defense is often to stand its ground because it's bigger than most of the things that might try to eat it. So, so they're not really scared. Not scared means a speeding car with bright headlights is often not enough to startle Bullwinkle out of the middle of the road. Some moose won't even bother turning their heads to look at an oncoming car, which means at night, a car's headlights won't reflect off their eyes, making them hard to see. Moose have much darker coloration than deer as well, adding to the visibility problem. It's a problem that Carl Brandon from Randolph experienced back in 2003. It was a Sunday night in July. Carl and his wife at the time, Anne, were driving on I-89. They were driving home to Randolph after attending a party in Thetford. So I rounded the curve, slide curve to the right at, at a crest of a little hill, and then it goes down a dip. And there were cars coming the other way, so my headlights were dipped. And all of a sudden, you know, I say, moose! And about a tenth of a second later, I hit the moose. I went right between her legs, and so the first, she hit the windshield and the front of the roof was where the moose hit. And so all the internal organs wound up inside the car, and the rest of the moose went over the top. As gross as this sounds, it's not all that unusual. Moose are so tall that cars take their legs out from under them, so they fall through the windshield and into the car instead of bouncing off the front bumper. It leads to quite a mess. And we completely grossed out the ambulance people because we covered with moose guts. And they, they thought I might have had a, you know, a, a laceration on my head because I had a lot of blood on my head. But it was moose blood, as it turned out. As it turned out, both Carl and Anne walked away with nothing more than a few scrapes and bruises. After Carl got cleaned up, he learned more about what happened after the moose crashed through his windshield. Like how his car skidded across the I-89 median and both oncoming lanes of traffic and how it barely missed an 18-wheeler before finally coming to rest about 100 feet off the opposite side of the road. I I mean, I have no idea how you are here talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was driving a Saab. Because I was driving a Saab? I mean, if we were in most other cars, we'd be dead. Not just injured, but dead. 
As crazy as it sounds, Carl might be right. Saab, before it went out of business, was based in Sweden, the country with the highest density of moose in the world. They have about 400,000 of them, which is 200 times larger than the moose population in Vermont. And that makes moose car collisions a major problem in Sweden. So Swedish car manufacturers like Saab and Volvo have responded by reportedly running their vehicles through moose crash tests. They hope to replicate and capture every detail of a real moose crash. Their goal... This is from a video that National Geographic Wild published back in 2011. Engineers recreate a moose crash by driving a car at high speed into a moose dummy made of rubber discs, steel, and wire. Over a series of tests, VTI found that improvements in the strength of a car's roof and windshield could potentially make the difference between life and death. But they've also found that the single most important factor lies within the driver's control, speed. So smart car engineering might help you survive a crash with a moose, like it did for Carl. But the safest way to protect yourself is to simply slow down in moosey areas. And this is where the moose crossing signs factor into the equation. Which brings us... Okay, hit that red button now. To Marcos Miller. He works at VTrans, the Vermont Department of Transportation. Okay, yeah, I've, I've got it running now. Marcos has worked at VTrans for almost three decades. So nearing retirement, hopefully soon. And if there's one thing to know about Marcos Miller, it's that there might be nothing he loves more than a well-placed and well-designed road sign. As a sign geek, I I tend to pay attention to a sign that's well-placed, that's got the appropriate vertical clearance, is on a nice straight post, uh, and and just looks good and is, is doing its intended job. Marcos is one of three regional traffic safety investigators in the state of Vermont. Right, yeah, so it's our group basically that will make the determination of whether the sign is warranted. But Marcos says that the process for placing new signs often doesn't even begin with him. It starts with, well, one of you. Typically, I get the uh, requests from private citizens that, you know, bear witness to, hey, I've you know, I've been seeing a lot of deer, I've been seeing a lot of moose, and, you know, can we get up some warning signs? Those requests kick off a process that is both science and art. And it all begins with something called a desk audit. So I'll do an initial desk audit where I'll look at things on film. I'll get onto our GIS-based platform and we'll look at habitat maps. In addition to a desk audit, Marcos also gets input from local game wardens and he talks to the person who originally requested the sign. And then, uh, you know, we review the crash data if, you know, if we have anything that's been reported. The crash data. As our question asker Jocelyn suspected, moose car collisions are a major factor in determining where to place a moose sign. Add all that up and you get very close to a final decision. There's a little bit of what's 
called engineering judgment that comes into play. A major highway, for instance, would be a more important place for a sign than a dirt road with very little traffic. And if all things add up or don't add up, that you know usually sways the decision on whether or not it's prudent to install this type of warning signage. And voila, that's the process of installing a moose crossing sign in all its painstaking, tedious, bureaucratic glory. In addition to moose signs, in Vermont, you can also find road signs for deer and bear, and domestic animals like horse, cow, and sheep. If you're driving across Lake Champlain to South Hero on Route 2, you can even find the state's only official turtle crossing signs. Our question asker Jocelyn was also wondering about signs that just say wildlife crossing. Those are used if there's a lot of activity from multiple species in one area. As for where the signs come from, VTrans gets them from Vermont Correctional Industries, meaning they're made by people in jail. And you may have noticed that there are different versions of moose crossing signs on Vermont roads. Some have a picture of a moose, while some just have the words moose or moose crossing. We used to install the moose symbol sign. That was the standard. It's still within the MUTCD as a standard warning sign. The MUTCD, or Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, is a list of federally approved sign designs. And the MUTCD recommends the image of a moose on a moose crossing sign for accessibility reasons. But those tended to disappear. (laughs) So the moose signs, I think, you know, are just a popular sign to hang in a garage or, you know, take it to moose camp and hang it up there. Um, We decided uh, in Vermont that we would start any new signs or replacement signs for that particular warning would be text-based. If you're listening to this, I implore you to stop stealing Marcos's signs. Not only is it illegal, but also, come on, just let the sign guy do his thing in peace. I tend to pay attention to guide signs, warning signs. I'm a sign guy. Unfortunately, Marcos is in the minority here. Not only do most of us not appreciate signs like he does, we don't even pay attention to them at all. See, it turns out, there's a dirty secret about Animal Crossing signs. The problem is, they're not at all effective in actually reducing speed, traffic speed. Moose signs don't actually work. We'll be right back. All right, here we are. This is ecologist Paul Marangelo again, right after we arrived in Moose Alley, the moose hotspot that I mentioned at the top of the episode. Yeah. Did you see the moose crossing sign? I actually didn't. Is, it, is that it right there? No, it's about six miles back. Okay. It's, it's one of those things, it's just another yellow sign and people just, you know, don't see him. I don't always see him. This brief exchange didn't stick out to me at the time. We were just making conversation. But a little while later, I realized the fact that I hadn't noticed the moose crossing sign on my way to report a story about moose crossing signs, that's indicative of a much larger problem. Here is Marcos Miller, noted sign guy and traffic investigator from VTrans, talking about the efficacy of a moose sign. Would the success rate of you know possibly lowering the mortality rate Uh, increase if people slowed down? Uh, Science has proven yes. Um, Is it going to slow drivers down? Uh, Typically, no. Marcos is right. 
In 2008, the Federal Highway Administration submitted a report to Congress called the Wildlife Vehicle Collision Reduction Study. At the time, there had been growing concerns about this issue, and for good reason. Between 1990 and 2004, the total number of car crashes in the United States held fairly steady, and even decreased a little. By comparison, car crashes with animals increased by about 50% over the same time period. So, the 2008 report to Congress was born. It had this little nugget about deer crossing signs, and deer signs, very similar to moose signs. It said, quote, Based on the available data, standard deer warning signs are concluded to be ineffective in reducing wildlife vehicle collision. To add salt to the wound, the report also said this, quote, Unnecessary signs should be removed, as they may distract drivers and require maintenance. So, not only do the signs not work, but they may actually be counterproductive. When I think about my own experiences driving past moose crossing signs, I can't tell if the anticipation I feel about maybe seeing a moose is distracting or if I'm simply more alert. It seems like a pretty fine line. But there's so much evidence that those standard yellow wildlife crossing signs don't work that some states have abandoned them altogether. Vermont is not one of those states, for now. I know that our section is, is currently reviewing uh, the policy on wildlife crossing signs. It's a little hard to parse exactly why Vermont still erects new wildlife crossing signs. One answer, though, might be found in that 2008 report to Congress. Quote, Standard warning signs may be required to reduce liability in case of wildlife vehicle collisions. I asked Marcos about this, and he said he's not aware of any requirements for moose, deer, or bear signs. He did say that if a farmer requests signs for cattle, that he is required to follow up. All that said, Marcos insists that moose signs can still work well if he does his job right. Are these signs effective? Uh, From a personal standpoint, I believe... Yes, they are. Uh, If they're done sparingly in those locations where you really need them, then I believe they have their place. So we try to eliminate litter on sticks uh, and not put up signs that really are not going to have much of any value to a driver. The best case scenario is that the signage uh, plays some educational role. That's Jens Hilke, a conservation biologist at Vermont Fish and Wildlife. He agrees with Marcos that not all moose crossing signs are litter on sticks, so to speak. Drivers at least have the understanding, hey, wildlife crossroads, some places are going to be potentially more dangerous because of wildlife crossing than others. Jens did give me another reason, though, for Vermont's continued use of moose signs, human psychology. We feel like we've done something tangible. We put up a sign and everybody can see that sign. And so clearly we've done something. I will just say, we're just scratching the surface of this huge issue of habitat connectivity and how roads and wildlife interact and and what wildlife are looking for in a changing climate. Habitat connectivity. You can't talk to anyone about moose without getting into a conversation about something much, much bigger than road signs. That's because moose crossing signs are just one tiny part of the state's overall approach to keeping drivers and wildlife safe. 
Think of it this way. Moose signs are like a band-aid. It might feel satisfying to put one on the road, but it doesn't address the root cause of why it's needed in the first place. And the root cause in this case is that humans build roads where wildlife live, which often separates important chunks of crucial habitat, allowing and even encouraging animals to safely connect with different parts of their habitat is the core tenet of habitat connectivity. Doing this helps promote genetic diversity in wildlife, and it also allows animals like moose to expand their ranges as our climate continues to warm up. But in Vermont, reconnecting habitat is an especially challenging proposition. For starters, Vermont has really old infrastructure. One thing about Vermont and VTrans is we're not building new roads here. This is Chris Slazar, who heads up the environmental section of VTrans. We're repairing an aging infrastructure, and a lot of our focus right now is on culverts and, and bridges that are, in, in some cases, you know, 50 or more years old and in need of replacement. Chris says that retrofitting old bridges and culverts to accommodate Vermont wildlife is much harder and, according to Chris, decidedly less sexy than building new infrastructure from scratch. You know, when, when people talk about wildlife crossing infrastructure, they, they typically think of the, the, the sexy wildlife overpasses like in Utah or on the Trans-Canada Highway through Banff National Park. And this brings us to the second major challenge for habitat connectivity efforts in Vermont, our animals. Out west, they have species like pronghorn antelope that travel in huge herds and migrate at the same spot every year. So if you build one big suspension bridge over a highway, you can basically solve the problem. Not so much in Vermont. Jens Hilke again from Fish and Wildlife. Connectivity in the east doesn't look like that. We have one animal here and a few days later one animal there. It's a lower density, but it's in more places. This is yet another reason why moose can be so hard to find. There's no one obvious place to go look for them. And if you're shouting at me, just drive to the Northeast Kingdom. Tell that to Chris Slazar. My wife and I drove up to the Northeast Kingdom a few years ago to, to go and, and see moose. And that very day, there was a moose wandering around the old north end of Burlington, where we had left from. Those crafty, mischievous phantoms of the forest. At it again. There are people, though, who are working to demystify the movement patterns of animals in Vermont and improve the state's habitat connectivity efforts. So we actually have a lot of existing transportation infrastructure in the state. We have over 88,000 state-managed transportation structures. So that's anything from bridges, culverts, to underpasses. This is Caitlin Drasher, a grad student at UVM studying wildlife movement in Vermont. Getting this, these models of wildlife movement throughout the state is the first step to understanding where they're most likely to cross the road. And we can look at areas where we already have transportation infrastructure and see you know, whether or not we need to add some improvements to that infrastructure to help them cross underneath the road or make it a little bit more appealing for them to actually use the structure. The models Caitlin and her team are using to look at wildlife movement are actually based on electricity. So in this case, the landscape is serving as the circuit, and wildlife are acting as the electricity moving throughout the circuit. Caitlin's research is ongoing, but ultimately, it'll help Vermont Fish and Wildlife and VTrans figure out which culverts or underpasses or bridges to prioritize based on how much use they get from wildlife. To recap, 
moose on Vermont roads can be very dangerous, which is originally why we started putting up moose crossing signs. Only, those signs don't really work. So in addition to those warning signs, Vermont conservationists are engaged in a massive, ongoing effort to help moose safely connect to parts of their habitat that got disrupted by roads. Which leads to one final twist in this story about moose and roads, one final S-curve, if you will. It turns out, not all moose visit roads in an effort to cross them. Here's moose biologist Nick Fortin again. Moose are actually attracted to roads in some areas because of the salt that we use to de-ice our roads, and then it kind of pools in wet areas by the side of the road and makes a, makes a salt lick for them. This is kind of crazy, and it's thanks to our question asker Jocelyn that salt was even on my radar in the first place. Are moose drawn to the roadsides because of salt? Like, because we salt the roads? The answer is yes. A huge reason moose are a danger near roads is because of road salt. You can even see this in the data. Moose mating season is in the fall, which is the time of year you'd expect moose to be most active around roads, leading to the most accidents. Except, according to the state, nearly 40% of all moose car collisions in Vermont over the past four decades have occurred in May and June. That's double the number of collisions during mating season. Most of the time when we're seeing moose really being attracted to these salty areas by the road, it's right around springtime after they've spent the entire winter on a very low salt diet. This is Katie Geeter, a biometrician for Vermont Fish and Wildlife. Basically, it's her job to analyze the data. And so they're kind of nutrient starved coming into spring. And one of the first things that they go for is that essential salt component. From a moose perspective, road salt runoff is an excellent way to find a delicious, savory snack. Here's Chris Lazar again. There are a lot of research projects underway to look at alternatives to salt. We haven't gotten to a point of of dialing that in yet, but um, we we definitely want to uh, keep an eye on that. Whether moose are getting drawn towards Vermont roads to cross them or simply to slurp up that delicious road salt, they get hit by cars a lot. According to the state, nearly 3,400 moose have been killed by cars in the past 40 years, which makes cars by far the leading cause of non-hunting moose deaths in Vermont. By contrast, according to Vermont game wardens, there have only been 19 human fatalities from moose car collisions during the same time frame. 19 in 40 years might not sound like a big deal, and in some ways, it's not. More Vermonters have died in non-moose traffic crashes this year alone, and it's only June. But 3,400 moose dead from cars means this is a huge issue for moose. And the moose population in Vermont is on the decline. At its peak, Vermont had about 5,000 moose. These days, it's closer to 2,000 and still dropping. Aside from cars, habitat loss due to Vermont's aging forests, and an increase in ticks due to climate change are major challenges for moose. And as the number of moose in Vermont has dwindled, so too have the number of requests Marcos Miller at VTrans receives for new moose signs. I can't even remember the last time I issued a 
a work order to have a sign installed for this type of activity uh, just because uh, the numbers have really, really dropped off as far as those concerns uh, actually reaching my desk. So if you're driving around the state and you feel like there are simply too many moose signs on the roads, you're actually onto something. Marcos says VTrans will occasionally remove a sign when there's other construction going on, but they're not keeping pace with the population decline. All of this reporting kept leading me to one frustrating realization about conservation work. At least right now, we can identify more problems than we have solutions. This dilemma crystallized for me when I was visiting Moose Alley with Paul Morangelo. So so much of the solution that we've been talking about is kind of um, optimizing these types of wildlife crossings. But if moose are coming to the roads, not even to cross the roads, just to kind of lick the salt from the the side of the roads, is there anything to be done about that? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of very sticky questions in conservation in general that we don't have the perfect answer for, and that's probably one of them. I still have never seen a moose, which means the great woolly behemoth's mythical aura keeps growing in my mind. But after reporting this story, I'm not so sure that's a bad thing. Maybe moose and humans can never coexist in complete harmony. Maybe, dare I say, moose and I are better off if we never meet. Josh Crane is an engagement producer on our show. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Jocelyn Hebert for the great question. To see some footage of moose and check out bonus data and photos, head to our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can submit your own question about Vermont, sign up for the BLS newsletter, and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at BraveStateVT. This episode was reported, produced, and mixed by Josh Crane, with editing by Myra Flynn and me. Our digital producer is Elodie Reed. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music, other music by Blue Dot Sessions, and our very own Myra Flynn. Special thanks to Ben Goldfarb, Jason Batchelder, Eve Frankel, Reed Nye, Henry Epp, and Liam Elder Connors. And thanks to the BLS listeners who got in touch during our reporting. Sue, Fred, Wealthy, Chuck, and Marcella. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. If you're a fan of the show, you can make a gift at bravelittlestate.org slash donate. Or just tell your friends to listen. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back soon with more people-powered Vermont storytelling. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.